We have three passages this morning. Uh, Psalm 19, 1 through 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. From Psalm 139, 13 and 14. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And from Mark 9, 17 through 24. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who was possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. The word of God for the people of God. There's a gray river of doubt between my head and my heart. They say, see, is believing. But I only see myself reflected in the currents of the great unknown. I need a savior to carry my head in heart. I wonder if you'd pray with me. Holy God, we are, we are gathered together today, both here in this sanctuary and in the sanctuary through online, and it is good to be together. And I, pray, I ask now, God, for your Holy Spirit to fall upon the words that I have, that they might become your words, so that together we might learn more about who you are, more about what doubt is in our lives, and how we can turn that doubt towards faith. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So, as you see, we're beginning this sermon series called Wrestling with Doubt. And I thought that I would start out with um, this study that was done at Church of the Resurrection. They did a survey at Church of the Resurrection, which is in Kansas City. It is a church much like ours, similar demographics, except it's a whole lot larger. And they surveyed 1,500 people about faith and doubt and all the things around it. And I thought I wanted to share just a couple questions. Here's the first question they asked. Do you doubt? Clear, simple question. Here's the answer. 
95% said yes, they doubt. Here's the second question. How often do you doubt? Let's see the results. 5% said never, and frankly, I doubt that. 20% said often, and 75% said some. Doubt is a part of who we are. That's why we're going to spend the month of January talking about faith and doubt, and there are a lot of different areas that we could cover. Um, today, we're going to start with generally what doubt is, and then, then a little question, does God exist? We were born, I think, to ask questions. I got to spend some of yesterday with some of my grandsons, and the four-year-old is in that stage where he's like, why? Grandma, why this? Grandma, why, why is the sky blue? Grandma, why are those trucks doing that? Grandma, why does your skin look like that? Grandma, why do you, yeah. Grandma, why do you? They ask everything without fear of what they're asking. And he just asks question after question, and it's delightful, and you try to answer them, and after a while, you're just like, because, you know. Um, but, but questions continue in our lives because we were made to ask questions, but we get to this point somewhere, probably in middle high school, where it's like you shouldn't ask so many questions. You shouldn't doubt things around you. And we take doubt and we make it bad. We make doubt something that we want to turn away from. You shouldn't doubt, especially around your faith. And we put faith over here, and this is where we should stand, certain, firm, and secure, and all the foundation of our faith. And we, we, we push them away from one another. And today, what I want to talk about is what it would be like to take the hand of doubt and to take the hand of faith and kind of bring them together and see how they can help us in this journey of spirituality that we're on together. Having doubt is a part of who we are, and it's an important part of how we are going to live our lives. So we're going to try to reframe it. The problem is when we start to experience doubt, we think we shouldn't. Because remember, doubt is bad. Faith is good. And we get all of these feelings, and we might even feel ashamed when we doubt. We feel like we're definitely wrong, and we feel like doubting is something we really don't want to talk about in public. We don't want to tell people that we're doubting. And what I think is that doubt is just another feeling. And you take the doubt, and you take the information, and you decide what to do with it. You can allow those feelings of doubt to push you and like, I'm a terrible person. I really never doubt. Or you can take it and push it over here towards faith where it's like, okay, okay, I'm going to ask these questions and we're going to see what's going to happen with all of this. So the thing about doubt is and faith is when we stand in the middle between faith and doubt and you have a hand on both of them, usually there is something big at stake. Something is really important, and you are standing between them and, and this balance, and you are trying to figure out what's next. The man in the scripture, Mark, that you heard uh, Phil read, the man in the scripture has a lot at stake. The health of his son, 
Many of you know this story, and it, it is this time in, in uh, the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark that, is, that uh, was written, and we come upon the scene where there is a man and his son and the disciples and a crowd of people, and the crowd is all hovering around this man and his son and, and some of the disciples. Not all of them are there at this time, just a few of the disciples, and the man's son is sick. And we don't really know what's wrong with him. We don't know what, what it causes, but it causes him to have what sounds like seizures. Um, and we, we don't really know any more than that. The book of Mark says it's a demon. Scholars today say it sounds like epilepsy. But whatever it was, it caused him to fall to the ground and be completely out of control, and he would get hurt when that happened. And because the son is out of control, the father has to stay extra close to the son so that he can protect him. Because he loves his son and everything is at stake, he doesn't want his son to be hurt. So when his, when his son, whatever happens when he falls, he wants to catch him. And it's exhausting, and it is not a healthy life for the child. And so he's heard about this healing that happens, and this father brings the, the son, and they go to the disciples. Jesus is off with some other disciples, and he says, can you please heal him? And I want you to picture they're all standing around, and the disciples are, like, doing what they've seen Jesus do. And they're, and they're, they're like, we can do this, and we're, we're just going to do this. And, and they try, and they try, and it doesn't work. The boy isn't healed. And I just imagine the disappointment of that moment where the, the father is like, oh my gosh, I thought this was going to work. And, and the son, we never even hear from him, but he had to be disappointed. And the disciples, can you imagine the disciples? They're like, we didn't do it. Are they doubting their own faith? Are they feeling ashamed? Like, we've been with Jesus a while now. Maybe we should have done that. All of these emotions are happening, and it is into this that Jesus comes with the rest of the disciples, and he looks around, and he's like, what is going on? And everyone tries to explain everything to him at once. Like, the father is like, I wanted my son to be healed, and the disciples are like, we tried, we really tried, and we couldn't do it, and here's what we did. And they're talking and talking and talking, and Jesus is like, wait a minute, wait a minute. And, and I, I want you to read this like he's an exasperated father an exasperated parent. All right, will you read this with me? Like that. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. I've sounded like that as a parent from time to time, and I imagine some of you have as well. When we read it, when we hear it, it is easy to think that Jesus is standing in, in wrath and is like, you unbelieving generation. But I, I want you to take a twist on it. I don't want you to take it as condemnation that he's rebuking them for not having enough faith, for not being strong enough in what they do. I want you to think about it as he's frustrated because he doesn't understand why when he walked onto the scene, they didn't say, Jesus, can you do it? Instead, they spent all this time explaining why it didn't work. I want to read to you, you know, when you're preaching on a Sunday, you come in early and you go over the sermon and you're like, what else can I do? Like, is this any good? And, and when I did that, I read the message version of the scripture. The message is this modern translation. Um, it is, it is um, it's a paraphrase, but it's put into language that 
that I really like. And here's, here's what this scripture sounds like in the message. Jesus said, what a generation, no sense of God. How many times do I have to go over these things? How much longer do I have to put up with this? Bring the boy here. Again, he's worried about the boy. He is not berating them for what they didn't do. He is frustrated because Jesus' compassion radar is going off. The boy is suffering, the father is hurting, and Jesus knows that he can make a difference. And so he engages with the father, and then they have this conversation. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. Imagine being that parent. And then, then he says this, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And then Jesus is like, if I can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Read this next line with me. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And at that moment, the father takes the hand of doubt and he takes the hand of faith and he walks toward Jesus. I do believe. Help my unbelief. I would imagine we have all felt like this at some time. The Father, I would love to talk to the Father. I so respect him. He, he is all in for this. Again, he knows what's at stake. And so he's like, oh, I have doubt. I have lots of doubt. But I also have this faith, and I don't know what to do with it. So, Jesus, I want to come to you. And that's what Jesus is asking us to do, to bring the doubt to Jesus, because so often when we doubt, we're, we're walking away from faith. I would rather live in the doubt because it's a lot easier to doubt than it is to believe in all of that over here. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 bring it along. Bring it along and come with me and come to me. And Jesus says, bring the boy to me. And when he says that, he is saying to the father, bring the boy to me and I will help. He's saying to the son, come to me and I can help you. He's saying to the disciples, come to me and I can help you. And he's saying to us, come to me and I can help you. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Jesus isn't afraid of our doubt. He's not afraid of the father's doubt. I don't think he's afraid of any doubt. But what he is asking us is to come closer when we doubt, move closer to God, not further away. So there's a couple things I want to share with you about that. Here's the first one. Doubt can be a useful tool. Doubt can be a useful tool. When we doubt, we ask questions, and questions lead to research, and research leads to actions. When we doubt, we ask questions. Questions leads to research. Research leads to action. So a while ago, before Christmas, I was invited to go on a Capitol Dome tour. Where is the Capitol Dome, you might ask? It is at the top of the Capitol. Turns out it's 288 feet up in the air, over the Capitol, outside. Over the Capitol, 288 feet up. And they're like, would you like to go up there? And I was like, I don't really know if I want to do that. That sounds a little scary to me. But I did the thing. I'm like, okay, 
I doubt whether I can do this. So I'm going to do some research into this. And so I, I did the research. First of all, I asked myself some questions. Are you unreasonable to have fear? No. You can have fear about whatever you want to have fear about. So it's not unreasonable. Um, second of all, has anyone ever died during this tour? Has anyone ever plummeted to their death? I did the research, and no, they have not. Would they allow people to go on a tour that's not safe? No, they would not. This is the U.S. government. It's very safe. And so I am picturing in my mind a little skinny ladder from the floor of the Capitol up to the dome. And we're just going to climb up like this, which I know is ridiculous. But that's what was in my mind because Heights and I do not go very well together. And um, I went online. That's not how it is at all. There's, there's actual steps and there's handrails you can hold on to. There is no plummet to your death. Um, and so the last question I asked myself was, what would I miss if I don't do it? And this is what I would have missed. That's 288 feet up. And I did it. And you don't have to go to the edge. <clears throat> it's very safe, but you don't even have to go to the edge. And it was beautiful, and it was amazing, and I just am so grateful that I did it. Now, was this a life or death, de death decision for me? It, it really was not, although I questioned it at the beginning. <laughs> but it caused me to examine my doubt, to ask questions, to do the research, and then to decide what I was going to do. I want us to approach our doubts around our faith in the same way. Ask the questions. Talk to the people who know things. Do the research. Read the books that are good. Be careful going online to get questions for things. Like, go to sources that are solid and secure, but go through it and ask the questions because doubt can be a very useful tool. It can keep you safe. It can help you make smart decisions. But doubt is important. Here's another thing about doubt. If we don't allow doubt, if we don't allow questions, we actually put our society in danger. You know, there are some faiths where it's like, this is what you will believe and you will not ask any questions. I'm very suspicious of that. Faith is about asking questions and learning more. You're building a firm foundation, but the way to build that is to work at it, to examine things and to ask questions. And if we don't, it can honestly be very dangerous. I'm going to show a picture on the screen of somebody from the Ku Klux Klan, and I just want to say that out loud because it can be very startling for some people. But I think it's important to see this because in 1922, this man, Hiram Wesley Evans, was the imperial wizard. During his reign, countless people joined the Klan. The Klan was very clear about who was good. Who was good was the white Anglo-Saxon Christian Americans. Who was bad were the blacks, the Jews, and the Catholics. Very clear delineation. During his time in power, this was the slogan that he perpetuated. To preserve this great nation for its native-born through Christ Jesus, our criterion of character. When I read that, you can leave that back up for just a minute. When I read that, I immediately have some questions. First of all, white Anglo-Saxon Christians are not native-born. 
to America. Like that's, did nobody ask that question? Did nobody think, wait a minute, this makes no sense. No, what they did was they blindly followed. It's called blind obedience. The second thing is, Christ Jesus, our criterion of character, you all know what the clan did, right? They would put burning crosses in the middle of the night in people's yards. They would ride horses around the house shouting threats and obscenities, all in order to terrorize a group of people. Nothing that they did had anything to do with the character of Jesus. Nothing that they did. And yet, are you ready for the number? Six million people in America joined the Klan during that time. Six million people didn't ask any questions. They didn't doubt what was going on. They didn't look at this man and say, help me understand. Instead, they just had this blind obedience, which is not what faith is. Faith is stepping back and asking questions and wondering why and how and why do we believe this? That's why when we do confirmation classes, we're like, ask all the questions you want. Questions build our faith. I believe that there is a place for doubt. I believe not only is there a place for doubt, doubt is critical to building up our faith. One of the questions that people struggle with today and yesterday and will struggle with tomorrow is this, does God exist? I have heard children ask the question. I have heard middle schoolers, teenagers, 30-somethings, 50-somethings, 80-somethings ask this question, does God exist? I have asked the question, and I'm a pastor. Does God exist? We all struggle with doubt in our lives. So when we experience this doubt, when we doubt the existence of God, what can we do? Remember the father in the book of Mark. I believe. I believe. Yeah. If you have ever felt that way, like you have a little faith and a lot of doubt, or maybe a lot of faith and a little doubt, take the hands of both of them and come together. If you have ever felt that way, or if you've had conversations with other people who have felt that way, what I want to do today is tell you why I believe in God. And I am someone who has had as many doubts as the rest of you. Just because you, you do this job doesn't mean you don't have doubts. The good news is, is we get a lot of equipping around it. So here's why I believe in God. Number one, the beauty of creation. The beauty of creation, I'm walking into church this morning, the sky is orange and pink and there's little white puffy clouds and there's the black silhouettes of the trees against it and I thought, oh, thank you God, it's so beautiful. I look at the beauty of creation, at the order of it, at the intricacies of it. I look at, I look at the, the beauty of an atom or, or a DNA strand or the cosmos all of it is so amazingly beautiful. And I look at that and I think, there's got to be something behind this. And I think that that helps me believe in God. Our, um, the, the people in the Bible, the Psalms, written so, so, so many years ago, I think they felt the same thing. You heard Phil read Psalm 19. 
The heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Those are people that are looking to God for order. Psalm 139, they're talking about how human beings are made. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Some people say the universe is self-generated, but it seems like there is a creator behind the beauty of it. So I, wa I want you to do something with me. I want you to look at this painting. Take a look at this painting. I love this painting. This was a gift. It was given to me by a friend of mine, and her sister painted it, and she brought it to me, and I was just blown away by it. I look at it, and I see so much in it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't really know what it's about, but it's kind of amazing, and I love it so much. And I want you to, to think about um, coming into my office, which you would see it. It's on the right side of my door as you come into my office, and it's always there, and you look at the painting and you say, what's that made of? How is that put together? And I'm like, I don't know. I think there's paint and maybe some paper. I, I don't know. And they're like, no, really, how is it made? How is it put together? I say, I don't know, but here's what I do know. The painting was a gift. It was meant to bless me. They gave it to me because they wanted me to experience this love of friendship and, and have something beautiful to look at. And every time, every time I look at it, I am filled with gratitude at the relationships that I have, and I'm filled with amazement at the beauty of it. And I see something different every single time. And that's how I look at creation. When I look at the world that God made, I am astounded at it, at all of the pieces of it. So when I look at the beauty of creation, I believe that God exists. Second thing, the experience of God in my life. I grew up in church. I was the first baby baptized in our church in North Canton, Ohio. And that was great, and I went to Sunday school and worship and did everything, and I believed in God. I knew God was there, but it wasn't until I went to church camp, I must have been about ninth grade, that I had an experience of God. And it happened on the Friday night, and we're all sitting in the lodge on the floor, and there's candles around, and we're receiving Holy Communion, and they're passing the bread and the juice around the circle. And while that's happening, all of a sudden, in the middle of about this, I saw Jesus, and I don't know if it was a vision. I don't know really what it was, but it was a profound experience of God. And it changed me. And I walked away from that experience a different person. And I asked our camp director, I said, what was that? And he's like, oh, God is trying to get your attention. And I said, well, God did. What am I supposed to do with it? And he said, I don't know. And I said, but, but what do I do? He said, explore it, examine it, ask questions. And so I did. I remember asking him in particular question after question. We would sit, I remember sitting on the steps of the lodge one day, and I'm like, but the resurrection, I don't really understand how that works at all. And he's like, I don't either. Here's something you can read. Let's talk this through. And he would just give me more questions and more things to study. But the thing that he said to me that still sticks with me is this. Always keep looking for God. Don't be content to just remember the last encounter. Always keep looking for God. Don't just remember the last encounter. So I try to always look for God. 
when I go out to dinner with my friends and we're sitting around the table and we're laughing, I look at them and I experience God because it's this friendship that's so beautiful. When I call someone on the phone who's having a hard time, I hear God say, pray with them right now on the phone. Don't wait. I'm like, okay. Every time I do that, the experience deepens and it reminds me that God is present. I could choose to ignore it, but I believe that that's God in my life. And then the final thing is the impact of faith on the world. The impact of faith on the world causes me to believe in God, and I'll tell you why. I look at all of you, and, and you cause me to believe in God because of your generosity. Your generosity of time. To spend all day Saturday with the confirmation kids. To go downstairs and, and work in Kid Nation every single Sunday and then come up here. To serve at Grace Ministries, to, um, to serve as one of the welcoming people. That's a generosity of time that you give, and it impacts the world. You're making a difference in the world. Your generosity of finances. Not, not the amount of money to give, but that you give because you want to bless vulnerable people. You give because you want hungry children to have food. You give because you want the unhoused to have a home. You give because you want women in Africa to give birth safely. You give so that women who suffer from abuse can find a way to freedom. That's an impact of faith on the world. And then finally, it's your um, generosity of compassion. You people write so many cards to people who are hurting. We've got this card ministry that blesses person after person after person every single week. And people say, I could receive the nicest card. They're going through really hard times and somebody blesses them with compassion. Some of you drive people to chemotherapy appointments. Some of you um, drive, take meals to people when they're in hard times. Some of you just sit and pray with someone. Your generosity of compassion leads me to believe in God because why else would you do it? You want to make a difference in the world because of your faith. I think that's the beauty of the church. We get to make a difference in the world because together, whether we are heavy on the doubt side or heavy on the faith side, we come together and we impact the world for good. That's what the church is at its best. And that causes me to believe in God. So if you're ever in a time in your life and you're doubting, maybe it's today, and you're doubting the existence of God, or you know someone who's doubting the existence of God, I want to suggest that you do the practice that I just did. I want you to get paper and pen or computer or however you write things down. I want you to answer these questions. I want you to look at the beauty of God in creation and ask yourself, how does it make me feel? What do I believe about creation? And then I want you to look at your own experiences of God in your life and write one of them down and reflect on it. And then look for the next one and the next one and the next one. And if you do that, you will see God more and more and more. And then I want you to come up with your own examples for the impact of faith on the world. Where do you see it happening? And you can't take what I just said. You've got to come up with your own. Where do you see the impact of faith on the world? 
and I want you to reflect on it, and I want you to ask questions. I want you to sit with someone, whether it's your partner or somebody that you live with or a friend. Talk about it. And if you've got a friend who's saying to you, I don't know why you go to church. I don't know why you pray. I don't know why you do this. Say, let's just have a conversation. And remember that you can take the hand of doubt and you can take the hand of faith and you can bring it all right up to Jesus. Because that man in Mark 9, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus wants us to come forward with all of that doubt, not hide it away and pretend it's not there because it's real and all of us have it and it's okay. I wonder if you'd pray with me this morning. Holy God, I am certain that there are people who are listening to this who are deep in doubt because that's the way of life, that's the way of faith, that's the way of who we are. And I pray, God, that, that, that they might be able to experience you in a way that would be helpful or that someone here would reach out and that there might be dialogue and conversation about what it means to doubt and what it means to have faith and that all of it is okay. And what you really want us to do is come forward to you and offer it all to you. And I pray this in the name of Christ, who loves us all. Amen.